Griffin is where we'll begin our reading, Jude verse 11. We begin this evening and read through verse 13. We've been here now for a few weeks in this particular, uh, particular portion of the Scripture, and so we are continuing this study uh, from verse 11 moving forward this evening. Woe unto them, Jude writes, for they have gone in the way of Cain and ran greedily after the era of Balaam for reward and perished in the gainsaying of Kor. These are spots in your feasts of charity when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear. Clouds they are without water, carried about of winds, trees whose fruit withereth without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots. Raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame, wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Verses 8 through 13, as we have mentioned previously, make up the fourth division of Jude's epistle. And the warnings within the third division, accompanied by the woes, or the woe of this fourth division, are all pertaining to the wicked men who pervert the grace of God as though God's grace is a means to excuse sin. Again, Jude mentions these men in verse 4, and it's important we recognize this. All that Jude is talking about from that point forward is in relation to these wicked men who've turned the grace of God into a license. It's into lasciviousness or licentiousness or license or freedom to sin. And so these are the ones Jude speaks of. And there is harsh warning about their end and harsh uh, woe to them about the terror of their condition. And we've seen uh, this played out throughout the previous verses as well. For instance, when we begin in verse 8, Jude describes these men who pervert God's grace, first of all, as filthy dreamers, then those who divide, they defile the flesh, he says, they despise dominion, and they speak evil of dignities. And the examples are given very clearly. I don't want to spend the time to rehash all of this, but just to, again, you back to remembering these truths, uh, filthy dreamers, he's talking about how that there is nothing beyond their imagination, of course. Then they defile the flesh. Not only is there nothing beyond their imagination, but they are attempting to continue to violate their own bodies even and flesh itself concerning working out the wicked imaginations that they have, have conceived themselves. And then they despise dominion. Of course, they hate authority. They hate those who are over them, who would instruct them, correct them, teach them, and so on. And then they speak evil of dignities. And this is an interesting statement because here, again, in Jude and in Peter, when this is mentioned, it references how that the, even the holy angels would not, like Michael, the archangel, would not rebuke Satan. But rather, he said, the Lord rebuke thee. And yet, what, the, what is being said here is that these men, that they actually will accredit their wicked works as though they are the works of God and that they are blaspheming God and even, even uh, speaking evil of dignities in the sense of that which God has declared to be holy and righteous, that they speak evil in the sense that they claim or credit their wicked works as though they are God's works. And they have no, this has nothing to do with God whatsoever. It has to do with their own wicked imaginations and their wicked actions. So within verse 11, Jude pronounces woe to these wicked men, and he provided us three historical examples from the Scriptures to describe their wickedness and its progression. Notice in verse 11, he speaks of the way of Cain. Cain rejected God's provision and approached God his own way. Again, I've told you, 
the way of Cain is any way other than God's way. It's when man says, I will approach God on my terms. Then you had the error of Balaam, number two. And Balaam deceived God's people and tempted them to sin for his own selfish gain. If you remember, Balaam was confronted and said, oh, if you will curse God's people, then we'll give you all of this. And Balaam said, I can't do that. God has blessed his people. So Balaam then conceived out of his own wicked imagination the plan and plot and told the, uh, the enemy how to tempt the men of Israel to fall into sin so that God would judge them, so that God would correct them or chasten them. And then third was the rebellion of Kor. Kor attempted to undermine uh, God's authority, which resulted in his utter destruction. Remember, Kor rose up with others concerning Moses and Aaron and that God had put in leadership over the people, and God swallowed them up whole, alive in the earth, opened up the earth and swallowed them up. They were undermining God's authority. And by the way, that really is what each, that, that each of these obviously are very much so applicable to these wicked men who pervert the grace of God. First of all, they're going their way, not God's way. Second, they are using for their own benefit, tempting the people of God to sin as though grace is a license to sin. Oh, go ahead, God's grace is sufficient. And that is the same thing that Balaam was doing. And then third, the rebellion of Kor, they are undermining God's authority because God's already stated what is righteous and holy and just. And these people are coming and saying, no, it's fine to do this. God's a loving God. He's a forgiving God. He's a gracious God. And all that is true. But that does not mean that God allows unrighteousness, unholiness to just continue on without being dealt with, obviously. And so we saw last week that Jude continued to pronounce woe in verses 12 and 13 and upon these wicked men who perverted God's grace. Within verses 12 and 13, Jude uses five illustrations to expose both the error and the end of such wicked men. Let's look at verses 12 and 13 again. These are spots in your feast of charity when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear, clouds they are without water, carried about of winds, trees whose fruit withereth without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame, wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Notice, first of all, spots, he says, blemishes. They disrespect God's church. And we saw that last week. We'll deal with that a little bit again. Second, empty clouds. They lack substance and are without direction. Third, unfruitful trees. They are unfruitful. Fourth, wild waves. They are unrestrained. And five, drifting stars. They have no purpose. Tonight we will examine each of these, or begin to examine these five examples. Um, We've already looked at the first, and we're going to continue with the second this evening. As to Jude's reason and meaning for their use to further describe the wicked men of verse 4. Now let's go back for a moment to the, just briefly to review spots in your feast of charity and how that this is disrespecting God's church. Verse 12, he says, These are spots in your feast of charity when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear. Last week I referenced Spence Jones and told you that he commented, The world itself, or the word itself, spots, however, properly means rocks. And therefore the point may be that their immoral conduct makes these men like treacherous reefs on which their fellows make shipwreck. So the feast of charity, or these cherry, were uh, the love feast as it's often referred to, were intended, again, as I mentioned last week, to be a gathering of the body of Christ in which the church would come together as one without distinction, embracing the identity that they shared 
in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was a reminder of the love and sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ and how that they were all equally one in him. And you find this talked about, Paul rebuked the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 33 concerning these very truths. And notice what, what Jude says. These are spots in your feasts of charity when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear. There is no respect. There is no discernment. They are not discerning the Lord's body as, as Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 11 and therefore are guilty. But then we move forward tonight to empty clouds. I told you, these are those who lack substance. Verse 12 goes on to say, clouds they are without water, carried about of winds. The illustration of the clouds without water conveys three truths which we must consider. First of all, the emptiness of cloud. Second, the empty promise that the cloud produces by virtue of its very presence. And third, the instability of the cloud as it is carried about by winds. So let's begin looking at each of these three and how that we'll see them to be significant in, in relation to the reason that Jude used them in this analogy, in this description. So we begin with the emptiness of the clouds. Notice what Jude says, clouds they are without water. Now clouds are obviously, as you are aware, the means and way in which rain is produced and provided. As the moisture accumulates by means of evaporation, it eventually reaches a point in which the cloud is unable to hold the moisture and rain is produced. And as we often say here in Florida, the bottom falls out because that's exactly what happens. Yet these clouds are empty that Jude refers to in that they do not hold within them the life-giving source of water. Paul refers to such in his letter to Timothy. In his epistle, Paul refers to them as merely forms without substance. In 2 Timothy 3, 1-5, Paul wrote to Timothy and said, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. Now look at verse 5. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. And then Paul charges Timothy by saying, from such turn away. Now notice the description of these men which are mentioned. By the way, let us be aware of this. In Jude's day in which Jude wrote, we're still talking about first century church, right? First century church. This is the brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? And so we are aware that this is first century church. And he's describing these men who pervert the grace of God in such a manner. Now, we come to 2 Timothy and how quickly we are to subjectify this passage and to look at it and say, okay, well, in the last days, and boy, are, we're living in these last days of perilous times. Do you not understand that Paul is writing of current affairs to Timothy? When he says, in the last days, perilous times shall come, men shall be lovers of themselves, that was already happening. If you do not believe that, think about what John says in his epistle. Remember, John wrote that the spirit of Antichrist was already present. And that there were deceivers. Did not Paul warn of the deceivers that were present? Did not Peter warn of the deceivers which were present? And now Jude and John, they, they do the same thing. 
we have to remember this and just to prove it to you. If you recall back in Acts chapter 2, at the time of the day of Pentecost, when the church is birthed, you remember Peter began to say, these are the days, the last days, of which the prophet Joel prophesied. Peter said these days, right now, first century church. Let me remind you of this, as, of this truth as well. Don't ever forget, the reason 1 Thessalonians 4 even exists in the scriptures and chapter, or chapter 4 and chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians is because the people of that day, believers, their loved ones were dying. And they were expecting for Jesus to have already returned and received them unto himself. And they were looking for the return of Christ and the eradication of the world, the, the whole destruction of the earth during the first century. And the reason 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 exists is because Paul is having to say, wait a minute, guys, don't, don't be worried about this comforting each other and realize that just because they have died and been buried, that does not mean that the Lord is not returning, neither does it mean forgotten or left behind, but at the last trump, the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain. We which are alive and remain? When Paul said that in 1 Thessalonians, when he said we, who do you think he was referring to? Who? himself we myself included we which are alive and remain shall be called together did that happen no but those were the last days and so when we read this in jude this know also or in timothy i'm saying where paul wrote to timothy i'm sorry this know also that in the last days perilous times shall come it was already happening and it continues to happen but then he says this about them Having a form of godliness, describing them in such a manner, very similar to how Jude describes them in, in terms of their lack of character, ungodly character. And yet he says they have a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such turn away. The form of godliness refers to the appearance of substance. What is Jude talking about? Clouds without, without water, right? That is a, a form without any real substance. What is a cloud? Yes, it's vapor, but there's no substance to it apart from the very vapor itself which forms the cloud. But it is the moisture in the cloud that continues to build and then pours out the rain that is the benefit. So here he's saying that they deny the power, referring to the absence of the source and essence of substance perverted the grace of God. Do you know what they did? They appeared as though they were full of wisdom and truth, but yet they are empty. There's no life-giving substance within them. Denying the power there from such turn away. Empty clouds at best produce shade, but they have no source of life-sustaining water or provision within them. Look, as miserable as it may be, you can live without shade for some period of time at least for some period of time. It may be painful and it may hurt, but you cannot live without water very long at all. But then second, not only the empty emptiness of the clouds themselves, but also the empty promise a cloud produces because it says clouds are without water. Again, the same statement, but now let's look at another perspective of that. 
Not only does this description of being clouds without water pertain to the nature of the cloud itself, but it has an impact on others who are witness to the presence of the cloud. Or let me refer to it, or let me, let me restate it like this. The clouds without water, not only is that statement descriptive of the cloud itself, but that cloud also impacts those upon whom it has influence. It's important to recognize the environment of those to whom Jude writes. Thomas Schreiner commented, Palestine, as you are aware, is a dry climate, tremendously dependent upon rains at crucial times to sustain life. When rain is desperately needed and thick clouds appear, the anticipation of and hope for rain climaxes. If no rain falls, bitter disappointment ensues. Let me give you an extreme example of this. Are you ready? This is an ex- the, the examples are, are far less extreme than this as well, but let me give you a more extreme example of this. How about the person who is dying of cancer and the TV prosperity gospel evangelist tells him, oh, I know there's somebody out there right now who has cancer, and if you'll just send, if you'll sow your life, you may have the only money you have left for your groceries, but if you'll just give that and sow that seed, God's going to heal you. Now listen. That person is desperately clinging and looking for some type of hope, right? And this person, in all probability, many times they do not know the Lord, or if they do, they are so greatly deceived by this nonsense not being rooted and grounded themselves, which is very sad. But the reality is that regardless, this, that, what does that do for that person who's listening, who is buying into this? What does it do for them? It gives them hope, but sets them up for disappointment as well. But it gives them hope. It's a false hope. But it's hope nonetheless, meaning to them. And then, when the cloud passes by, and there's no water which comes from it, what are they left with? Nothing but despair and disappointment. Now, that is a more extreme example. But it happens all the time, by the way. But what about... Other ways. How about this? As simple as things along the lines of, oh yeah, you need to tithe, and when you tithe, you know, God's going to bless you financially whenever you tithe. That's no different. Saying, okay, you do this, and you can buy God off mentality. And people are set up all the time for disappointment by buying into the lies of those who would proclaim heresy. And so when there is a cloud that is passing by, especially in a dry climate, now, for us Floridians, we like to see the clouds kind of pass right on by. (laughs) But for the dry climates and places that are desperate for rain, they want the rain. Think about this for a moment. How about out west right now, like with Lake Mead? And how it just dried up significantly. And that's going to end up causing power issues, all types of water supply, drinking water, power for the, for the, uh, to produce, or, or the water to produce power. And, and that's, going to, that's turning into a mess. The point is, they would love to see the clouds come and pour water and rain. So whenever you're in that type of situation and you hear that it's coming and you're looking and you're watching and anticipating and then it passes right on by, it just leaves one in absolute utter disappointment.
So if a cloud formed in the sky, it formed a certain anticipation of an outpouring of the water, a rain. Yet these clouds, although promising in their appearance, never delivered on the promise. The emptiness of the clouds not only revealed their personal deficiency, but were also detrimental to all of those who were under their influence. Then third, the instability of the cloud. The scripture goes on, Jude says they were carried about of winds. The clouds not only were empty, but also driven by the present winds as they blew. These clouds were gone as quickly as they came. When a gust would blow, the clouds had no anchor, but would simply move with the winds. The Apostle Paul spoke of how the Lord has given the church teachers of the truth. So, Ephesians 4.14, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men, the same people Jude's talking about, and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. And why do they do it? Because just like, just like Balaam, they're greedy for their own benefit. These clouds, these wicked men who perverted the grace of God were as clouds which came and went without any stability or anchor. And what appeared to be a promise of refreshing water, life-giving substance, resulted in nothing more than a false hope which left those under their influence dry, parched, and desperately thirsty and longing without any relief. Look how far the church has come today and removed itself from proclaiming the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ who provides a well of springing water from within. People are looking to everything and anything other than Christ who is the only sufficient provision to quench the thirst that will eternally be present absent of him and yet men are continually just as these clouds preaching false teaching false doctrine heresy turning the grace of god into a license to sin and telling people it's going to be okay and it's not okay third unfruitful trees let us continue in verse 12 trees whose fruit withereth without fruit twice dead plucked up by the root You know what? We're going to stop here. We don't have time to finish this. We will just pause here. But let me say to you, as we, Lord willing, we will pick this up when we return. But let me say to you that the, everything Jude is speaking of in this passage, let's not forget the thesis of his statement. What is the thesis of the epistle? Verse 3. What is the thesis? Earnestly contend for the faith, which was once delivered unto the saints. And then he goes into verse 4 explaining how what? There are men who turn the grace of God into lasciviousness, licentiousness, license to sin. And from that point forward, he is just describing and warning against these men. So what are we to do? We're to hold fast the faith. 
We are to be rooted and grounded in the faith, lest we also be deceived, such as those who are under the influence of the empty clouds, of the unfruitful trees, of the wandering wild waves and wandering stars. So all of this still pertains to the thesis statement, contend, earnestly contend for the faith. Be rooted and grounded and engaged in the faith that you might engage the culture and the church with the truth. Because there are many who are coming in deceiving. Giving all of this false hope. And notice something, the false hope is always materialistic and physical, not spiritual. But we have hope that's eternal and spiritually in Christ. Here's what you have to remember, and I don't know why this is just so, well, I do know because of the deception of Satan and wicked men who pervert the grace of God and pervert the truth of God, but remember something. No matter how healthy you may be, no matter how rich or wealthy you may be, no matter how long you may live, no matter how happy of a life you may possess, you are going to die. It's inevitable. Are you following me? So what could someone possibly offer you to resolve or to answer that problem? There is no answer apart from Jesus Christ. Because even as those who know Christ, we will still die. But here's the difference. I've shared this with you before and I'm finished. You will either be born once and die twice, or you will be born twice and die once. There is a physical death we all will face, but there is eternal life for those who know the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the answer. Because you're going to die. So all of this false hope and false sense of hope that is being propagated out there, it is never dealing with the eternal spiritual problem that exists. And that is something that is eternal that will never go away. And the only answer to that problem is God's provision of Jesus Christ alone. For if a man eat of that bread, if a man drink of that water, he will never hunger or thirst again. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for the opportunity.